0: Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast is Colorado Rockies coach Trevor Burmeister. Coach Burmeister is entering his second season as hitting coach with the Colorado Rockies. He was the 2019 ABCA NJCAA Assistant Coach of the Year while at Madison College. Trevor had a great career for the Wolfpack as well. After finishing his time playing at Madison, he went on to play at uw LaCrosse. Once he finished playing, he moved on to the coaching ranks at the University of Minnesota-Duluth. Coach Burgermeister also spent time on the travel organization side, coaching with the GRB Rays and Summer Collegiate League with the Madison Mallards. Trevor has a bright future in the game, as you will hear in this episode. He did a tremendous job of answering my questions. We're at a pivotal point in developing hitters in the baseball community. I wanted to get his take on some of the pressing questions that are out there in the hitting community. This should be a great resource for coaches trying to wade through the massive amount of information that is out there about hitting. I also hope this is an example of how the older generation and younger generation can have a productive conversation about hitting. Let's welcome Trevor Burmeister to the podcast. Here with the Trevor Burmeister, Colorado Rockies, Madison College, GRB Rays, uh, 2019 ABCA Junior NJCAA Assistant Coach of the Year. So thanks for coming on with me, Trevor.
1: Appreciate you having me. This is great.
0: Good. I'm I'm gonna fire right away here. So I got a bunch for you here. what has happened to hitters? Um, we know so much about the swing now, but overall numbers, especially if you look at the big league level and, and college on down, the the bat to ball skills aren't there as much. Has anything happened or you know, what do you feel like maybe the difference is now with hitters?
1: It's a great question. Um yeah, I do think um I think the overall perception of you know what success is for a hitter has changed. Um and I think a big part of that is, you know, what do we watch on TV? You know, and I, I, I really wish that college baseball would be on TV more. It's starting to, and I think that's great. Um, and this is coming from a pro guy, but, you know, I think, um, you know, the perception of, you know, what makes a great hitter is like a lot of times what guys are seeing and like MLB knows and like obviously home runs draw crowds and it draws excitement. Um, but the problem with that is, is that when you're dealing with kids at younger ages that physically aren't there yet, and they're, you know, a big part of becoming a great hitter is understanding who am I as a hitter, what makes me successful. And that doesn't mean that you have to be the guy that's hitting 35, 40 home runs every single year. But when you're constantly being shoved that in terms of like, this is what makes a great hitter, it's really tough for young people to you know, separate that in their minds and understand like, hey, who I am right now, I gotta understand these are my strengths. This is what makes me great. I mean, I've I've dealt with a lot of guys that are the contact type guys that are top of the order that just have to find their way on base. They have good they have good speed. The guys that are double RBI type hitters where that's who they need to be and they they'll spin some line drive home runs out of the park and then you have your big boppers, but understanding what is your identity and who who what what, what makes you successful has been a, a bigger challenge, I think, for guys um, recently, um, just in, in terms of, you know, what we're seeing at the highest levels in terms of what we think success is.
0: And I would send that to our guys. I'm like, guys, I was really fortunate. I grew up in an era where bunning, drag bunning, push bunning, my my heroes were Brett Butler and Ozzie Smith and Willie McGee, Vince Coleman. I was like, I was really lucky that I grew up in an era where my skill set is what I saw on, on TV, is what I saw with big league guys. That was my skill set. So Ricky Henderson, steal a lot of bases. So, you know, I'm glad that you brought that up. There still is a place for those table setters. They don't see it as much, um, but I dealt with it a lot. And at the college level is our best teams had guys at the top and guys at the bottom that could do things that that were action-oriented guys. You know, Justin Tools on the big league staff with the Indians – he was our nine hole hitter his sophomore year and was all region in the nine hole for us, but he made our offense go because he got everything started down at the bottom of the, of the order.
1: Right. And I think, I think a big part of it too, is like, especially like high school, college guys, who you are right now is not who you're going to be potentially in five, eight, 10 years. Right. You never know when it clicks and especially when guys get to like uh, minor league baseball, it's our jobs in player development to, you know, find those, where are their strengths, where are their growth areas? And those growth areas might turn them into a guy that ends up driving the ball out of the park a little bit more. Um, But no, it's just, that's, that's the big piece of it. And the guys need to, you know, really hone in on, and here's the truth. When you're in college, you're in high school. If you play to who you are and what your strengths are, you're going to be on the field more. You're going to get noticed more. And then you're going to actually maybe have those opportunities of playing longer and longer and longer and, and, um, extending your career as long as possible. And at that point, who knows what you turn into?
0: Is it, is it still rhythm timing and getting into a good position to hit from? Are those still, are those still keys to
1: hitting? It's, it's crazy. Yes. Um, for sure. Um, you know, I've been, I've had the opportunity here during COVID to, um, really challenge my ideas and work with, with, with some hitters and, It's cool because, like, I think back to, like, where I am right now and the growth that I've had in terms of the information that I know and, like, the strengths that I have, and it always comes back to what position do you get into when your front foot strikes and how consistent is that position? Can you get to that position every single time, whether you're facing 97 or you're facing 80 poo? You know what I mean? So um, 100% in body awareness and getting into a strong position to hit so the swing can unfold itself the right way. It always comes down to that first and foremost. And
0: what about back L position with the back leg at, at contact? <laughs> I mean, I, cause I, I don't see it as much. And this is coming from a guy that taught hitters for a long time. And when we focused on contact position, that was really one of the keys of what we were keying in on is at contact. Do, does it look like everybody else looks? And I don't see it as much. So, and I'm asking for my, General you know knowledge you know is that important anymore? Does it matter? I mean, you're seeing a lot of the kickback stuff, which guys always did that, but yeah. you don't see as much of the back l anymore um
1: yeah no that's it's a great observation um, you know i I'm gonna be honest with you, I don't really pay attention to that as much um, you know for me, by getting into the right position when our front foot strikes you know, and creating the right leverage and the strength in the ground. You know, I used to be like initiate the back hip type speaker, you know, and I'm, I really, I never use that cue anymore. Um, for me, it's about getting into, I want them as neutral as possible. And that front foot hits, I want them as square to the plate as possible. Cause then I think in terms of space, space, when it's North, South, East, West, we have a chance to cover as much as possible. And then at that point, if the swing is triggering in the right spot, which for me is more so in the middle of the body. What ends up happening is like when we're holding our, our legs really strong in the ground and we initiate the swing from the right spot, that back leg ends up being basically um, it, a victim. It ends up being like pulled with the swing, and the shape that it creates is the shape that it creates. I am not a guy, you know. I think it's true. Like when you watch a lot of the really efficient movers at the highest levels, they do have some sort of kickback and reciprocal kind of type of movement with their lower half. I'm not big. I'm like, Hey, you have to make that move. Right. For me, it's about putting the right constraints on their system with how their bodies have to move, whether they're a loose mover, or stiff a stiff mover. And when you find what those right constraints are, their body's going to move how their body's going to move. But the most important thing is, are we creating efficiency? Are we allowing a swing that works in really tight windows of time and space, especially when you're looking at the velo, just keeps going up and up and up. Um, you know, and at that point, how the body operates is how the body operates, but we, we want that consistency. We wanna see that, you know, we don't wanna see like 10 different swings, right? We wanna see the swings be as consistent as possible. But for me, it's all about the right constraints on the system, getting in a consistent position to hit, and then seeing how the body unfolds and how the body uh, ends up operating through that swing.
0: You know, and every generation of coach really has they use the tools that they're that are available to them. You know, when I was coaching that we had the radar gun, that was one of the first tools we could we could get with exit velocity and talked about consistency of the swing and that's what we talk about with consistency of exit velocity is we wanna we know what your top end range is. Let's try to get that, but let's be consistent. It doesn't do us any good if it's 100 at one point and then 78 at one point. And that's where you talk about a little bit about the consistency of the swing. What are some of the other metrics that you're kind of using to to show hitters, like, hey, here's what a consistent swing looks like, and and just so you can kind of have that conversation with your hitters?
1: This is a great question. Um, I was – I I got to watch some of the presentations at Bridge the gap with 108 performance and baseball cloud was on there. And I went on the question and answer afterwards. And I talked to them because obviously they're big on the metrics and the data. And um, I, I explained to him like who I am and I'm, I'm new in professional baseball and we have all this information that's available to us. Like how do we as coaches even comprehend it all so that we can simplify it for each individual lens of who we're talking to. And basically what he said to me was like, you find the metrics that are important for your philosophy. You find the metrics that are important for what you think is going to build a successful hitter. And I kind of just alluded to it. I think exit velocity is great. You know, I think it's a really good tool to use. I have a pocket radar. Um, and we, uh, Darren Everson, our hitting coordinator, is always carrying around his pocket radar also. Um, but the most important thing for me with exit velocity is, can we produce those high-end numbers with minimal effort? Right. Because if we're doing that with minimal effort, then we have a really efficient swing. We have a guy that has a chance to hit whatever's in front of him, especially when it comes to velocity. And I'll just say this, like we have blast sensors, we have Rapsodo, we have hit tracks. I mean, we have so much stuff that's available to us in terms of for me, um, the most important metric that I like to look at, especially when it comes to the blast sensor is I really like to pay attention to the time to, to impact. How quick can we get from from point A to point B um, to the baseball? But that in itself can be a trap, right? If you're not really looking and your eyes aren't seeing the right things, because you can have a guy with a blast sensor on that has a really good time to impact, but he's compensating to get that time to impact, right? Especially in BP when I'm just kind of lobbying it in there and it's it's not that much of a challenging environment but there's a lot of pull, there's a lot of body involvement, but their time to impact is great. If you look at that metric and be like, oh man, we're right there, we got this. You're actually building a hitter that when he steps in the batter's box, he has all that extra movement, he's gonna struggle. So you gotta pay attention to that, but we're all talking about efficiency. So like the time to impact is really important to me, but I want it to be with minimal effort um, and, and find a way with how their bodies are designed. And again, like the constraints that they need within their system to have consistent and efficient moves to the ball. Um, you know, I, I want, you know, like, and not to get too crazy with this answer, but a lot of people talk about bat speed, like for me, bat speed. Yeah, of course it's important if you have a guy with bat speed, but for me, bat quickness is, is probably even more important, especially where the game is at. And those two things are different. Right. So, um,
0: well, that was, I, I, I like, think pool host best year he had in his career is his average was like 87 miles an hour.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's crazy because I think the average major league bat speed is around 70. Yeah. So, you know, and that's the crazy part about it. And again, like talking about like the younger generations of kids that are watching the big league levels. There's there's high school kids that can register 85 to 90 mile an hour bat speeds, but they can't hit a lick when they get in the game. Okay. And then you explain to them that the average major league, the best of the best of the world, their average uh, bat speed is 70 miles per hour right? It kind of, it's like this epiphany, this aha moment of, okay, this is not everything because then you look at those younger kids and they're trying to generate those 85, 90 mile an hour bat speeds and you watch how their bodies move. You're like, okay, anybody that can handle a baseball, this kid's going to have a really, really tough time.
0: And is that, is that kind of what you're gauging off of though? Is, is, is that bat speed to tell the difference between an aggressive swing with a tent and then maybe an over aggressive swing that's out of control?
1: Um, I would say, I would say I would more so, I I more so use my eyes for that. Um, I think it's, I've gotten to a point now where I can see it pretty clearly with my eyes. Obviously the metrics are there for a reason and and the data is important to look at and it can tell a really big part of the story. Um, But yeah, you can cross reference with it. You can look at what they're showing with their bat speeds and then it even helps your eyes even more with what you think you're seeing. Um, but, mine was yeah, always think, the
0: front shoulder. I mean, that's what I always keyed in on was, and I called them front shoulder flyers, you know, guys that were really over aggressive sure. and, and kicked out the, the front shoulder early. Those guys always had trouble for me with, with fastballs and breaking balls away because they were for committing sure. too soon. Is that still similar?
1: I would say for some guys, it's, it's, it, it depends. It just depends on the hitter. It depends on how they're moving. It depends on what their intent is, what they're trying to do. Um, and it's crazy. I'll say this too. Even at the highest levels, you know, unfortunately, my first spring training experience was only about two weeks before COVID hit. But just being in that environment, and it's really cool with our cage setup because we have a whole bunch of cages, and we're on the left side of it, and on the right side of it, you even have the you have the big leaguers, right? So you can kind of peek over and see how Nolan Arenado is going through his business and and Blackman and Trevor Story, and it's it's really cool, but. Even with our minor league guys, they're trying to figure stuff out. I mean, they want to get to the big leagues, right? And I'm sitting there and I'm watching and I come from a junior college and um, D3, D2, NCA background. And I'm like, a lot of the moves that these guys are creating are the same issues that I was trying to create with the guys back at Madison College, right? In terms of there's not quite the awareness yet of this is not going to help me, right? When it comes to the margin of error getting smaller and smaller as the game gets better and better.
0: What drills do you feel like translate to a game swing?
1: Yeah, you're gonna get a lot of these answers from me. It depends. Um, it's, it's, it's all about um, the individual mover and what they need. And like we talked about, like, what is their skill set? You know, understanding who they are and what's gonna give them the most amount of success. But in terms of the, the simple answer would be is that we need to expose them as much to what they're going to experience um, at the, at the game level. So Darren Everson is, uh, you know, Darren, he's phenomenal, right. And super prepared, does a great job. So we, we do use machines a lot. Um, you know, uh, Darren likes to challenge these guys with velocity as much as we can. We'll do a uh, short L screen BP where we're just trying to hum it in there as much as we can. Um, we love to, uh, go from different angles, um, because the ball's always moving. Um, So the simple answer would be drills like that, definitely that challenge the hitter, you know, there is a part of where you need to make the environment um, comfortable enough for them so that they can focus on the movement that they're trying to create. Because I do believe it's all in the movement. But, you know, like if if we know that we're going to face a guy that's 95 and above, you know, I'm not doing my job if I'm not preparing those guys in terms of actually seeing that out of a machine or out of a hand. Um, from different angles. So we do a whole bunch of work uh, like that in terms of their preparation and making sure that they're being exposed to what they're actually going to experience in the game setting.
0: Is there a barrier of entry for a player to get into professional baseball?
1: Uh, explain that question to me.
0: Okay. So like baseline, what, what do you have to have as a, a player to, to get into professional baseball? Is there a barrier of entry? I mean, what separates the the guys that yeah. get that chance and the guys that don't get that chance?
1: You have to have ability. Uh, um, you know, you have to be you have to be a good player. Um, and I, I will say this, you know, and this is going to be kind of like a deep dive uh, question or answer to the question. Um, I think society in general, in terms of the distractions and the different things that we can be pulled into, is a barrier in terms of guys having a chance to get to the highest levels. Um, you know, I've had plenty of conversations with guys that are, I believe this, there are people in this world, like the Mike Trouts, I call them the one percenters. They're so darn talented. It don't matter what choices they make. It doesn't matter what they do. They were born, as soon as they came out of the womb, they were prepared to hit a 97 mile, mile, mile an hour fastball with sink, right? He's unbelievable. He's the, he's the best, in my opinion, probably the best of all time. Right, So you have that group of people, but the majority of guys, they they were just different in how they approached things. Right, This game, their goals, their visions were so important to them that those distractions I, – I read a really great book, um, It Takes What It Takes by Trevor Moad. It's a new book. Yeah, he's I would recommend it for everybody. Great. Oh, It's phenomenal. And he talks about choices and illusion. Yeah. Um, Nick Saban talks about it all the time with his players. It's like they think they have all these choices and they want to become – NFL football player they want to become a major league baseball player but they get pulled in so many different directions and the conversations that I have it's like you have this big group of guys you need some talent but there's so many players that have talent that don't get to that level that they claim that they want to get to Um, at that point it's all about the choices that we make and those choices are an illusion but the problem is is that we get pulled in so many different directions in terms of getting us off our visions, getting us off our goals, that I think a lot of players um, that are in that group of normality with talent, they have a hard time of actually separating themselves from that group in terms of uh, giving themselves the best chance um, uh, to get to the level, the highest levels possible to get drafted and play professional baseball.
0: We had a track coach at James Madison and um, I was getting my master's there and we had an advanced coaching class, which is a great class. They would bring the head coaches in on campus to speak and, so a head coach on campus would come. They'd speak for like an hour, and then we'd have class. But Bill Walton, when he came in to talk to us, he goes, hey, there's no such thing as burnout. It's just the interest change. Yeah. That's what he said. I loved it. I loved it. He goes, there's no such thing as burnout. It's just people's interest change.
1: So That's great. Loved it. That's great. Loved
0: yes. it. Yes. And, I mean, that's what it speaks to. I, I've had I coached a lot of players with talent that didn't get to – probably maybe what I thought they should get to and, and were good players, but maybe didn't get that opportunity, but it was all of their daily habits and, and what they were yes. willing to sacrifice. And then I had guys that I thought would never get that opportunity that got an opportunity to play professional baseball because they were good with their daily habits and routines.
1: Yeah. And you just brought the word sacrifice. It's everything. Yes. Right. And I can allude to that personally, you know, I'm I'm a former division three hitting coach, right. And a short, and I, what I consider a short amount of time, I've, I'm very fortunate in terms of where I've gotten to, but I think of how I went through that process. It was, you know, it was all about just trying to be the best at where I'm at right now. And it was super important to me. Like I wanted the answers. I wanted to make the players around me better. Um, And I'll say this too, like you just kind of alluded to it. Part of it is luck. I mean, you, you know, you you have the right habits. You go about it. You need to be seen at the right time, right? But all it can take is one at bat. All it can take is one great play in the field. All it can take is, um, you know, a, a couple good at bats. But you have the look of what they're looking for, right? When they're watching you on the baseball field, because um, the majority of guys that make it to professional baseball, like the best of the best, the five tool players, they're so hard to come by. A lot of the guys that we end up getting, like they have one or two good tools. And then it's our job to try to make those other ones suitable enough to be really good at the big league level. Right. Players need to understand that it's like the majority of guys, they don't, they're not the five tool players. Like it's a lot of guys are born to be that player. The majority of them, it's one or two of them. Right. And then at that point, it's about trying to fine tune and and, and get those growth areas and those other aspects where you're just a little bit further behind. But if you're seen by the right person at the right time, right? You do a couple good things on the field. It can happen like that. You just, you just never know.
0: Now, is there a barrier of entry to get into coaching professional
1: baseball? Uh, There used to be. Um, I think, I think there used to be, Um, you know, and you know, this, um, I think like within like the last four years or so, maybe three years when these college coaches started to get pulled out of college baseball into the professional ranks, it never used to be that way. Um, you, you needed to have some sort of uh, professional playing background to have a chance to, to, to coach at that level. Um, but now, you know, I, I don't know if there is as much of a barrier. Um, they just want really good teachers. They want really good coaches, uh, guys that, um, you know, take this profession really seriously, that are open-minded, that are um, lifelong learners. Um, you know, Darren talks about it all the time of, What's great about our environment is like, everybody's different. Like we all have, it's not like a group of, of hitting coaches that all think the exact same thing. And that's what they want. They want us all to have a different perspective. But if we're really strong in terms of the relationship building with the players and building the trust with the players, we have our meetings with the hitting coaches and we can bounce ideas off of each other. We just make each other stronger. Um, so in terms of your, your, your question, I don't think there's as much of a barrier anymore. You have to be good at what you do right? You have to be prepared. Um, I mean, if you walk into a, a a professional baseball cage and all, you know, how to do is throw BP, they're going to look at you like, who the heck is this guy? Um, but no, I think, uh, the opportunity is, is definitely there more so now, and it's really exciting. And I think it's a great thing. Um, and there's a lot of coaches, even some friends of mine that have had some opportunities at at the professional level that are doing a really great job. And, um, it's, it's, it's cool. It's really exciting.
0: What is the first thing you think of when you hear Darren's name?
1: <laughs> relentless. Um, <laughs> just um, relentless in all aspects. Uh, in terms of his learning, I mean, he's always taking notes. Uh, he's an avid uh, podcast listener. Obviously, he's on a lot of podcasts. Um, he's always talking baseball. I mean, it's, it's fun because I'll just get random text messages uh, from him with videos of his son, uh, Jared hitting, and I love it. But, um, but then when you're actually in the environment with him, it's like, you better keep up. Right. Cause it's, it's go, go, go. Um, you know, he's in, I guess the other word I, I think of too, is prepared. He's just incredibly prepared every single day. Um, I think that's, uh, that's, that's the, those are the two words that I would explain him.
0: What about when you hear Mike Davenport? <laughs>
1: Oh man, the best. Um, he is, isn't he? Yeah,
0: From, not that I mean, people know him, but th- probably throughout the country, probably not as many people know Mike Davenport. But he, for me, I, I grew up around him, with him. Um, you know, we were yeah. young coaches together. I think he's one of the best guys out there.
1: I think, yeah, a lot of people don't know about him, and I think he maybe likes it that way, <laughs> he's, for sure. Yeah, he's he's an incredibly humble guy. I mean, he's got over 900 wins. He's had an unbelievable amount of success. Um, and our vision always at Madison College was preparing guys for what's next. But when you get the players that we do, and a bunch of guys that maybe were overlooked in high school, that have this chip on their shoulder, they're hungry to learn. It ends up turning into a pretty powerful group that you put on the field come tournament time and you know we've been really really close he won a national um, coach D won a national championship at Kishwaukee Um, but no I'll say this about him Um, there's there's he's the single person in terms of like my career who I am that has done the most for me and he's not big on on receiving compliments but um, you know I was a division two hitting coach at Minnesota Duluth Um, We had a really great year. Um, Phenomenal year. Got to a regional. Um, I think we were, I I sometimes get these back uh, mixed up. I think we were third in the country in home runs, second in batting average. It might be the other way around. Um, And then that summer I'm coaching with the Madison Mallards and Coach D gives me a phone call and says, hey, what would you think about coming back to Madison College? I'm like, you know how long I've been waiting for this phone call, right? I was just hoping for the opportunity. But the crazy part was is that, you know, a lot of people would view that as a jump down. You go from D2 NCAA to JUCO. And I probably asked, you know, 10 people within the baseball community that I trusted a lot, like, Hey, what would you do? And I'm not kidding you, Ryan, like eight out of 10 people said, stay where you're at. I didn't listen to them. (laughs) Right. Because I knew exactly what I was walking into. Um, And it's really cool now because I can. That's a little more of a sure thing
0: for you. I mean, you, you were there, like you, you, it's not like going someplace where you don't know exactly what you're getting into.
1: For sure. For sure. And, and that to the defense of the people that said, stay where you're at, they probably didn't know that as much, right? In terms of the environment that's actually at Madison College and the type of coach that Madison, or uh, Mike Davenport is. Um, but, and,
0: and being at the junior college level, it keeps you involved with four-year coaches all the time because of the recruiting sure. side of it.
1: Yeah, and then that that job at Madison College is also tied into GRB Academy. So I was coaching a team during the summertime. So then you're you're building those relationships even more because uh, you're on the, the summer travel circuit. But the main reason I made that decision was solely because of Coach Davenport. I wanted to be back with him. I wanted to learn from him again because I'm like, I'm not a finished product right now. I feel good about where I'm at. But if I want to get the, to the point where I want to get to, this is the guy, this is the environment I need to be in and it's fun to tell the players right now that I'm not where I'm at right now without making that decision to come back to Madison college and be around this guy again. Um, so, you know, realize how fortunate you are to be coached by somebody that is literally one of the best at what he does. What about Greg Reinhardt? <laughs> Greg's a good friend. Um, he's, um, an incredibly good businessman, obviously GRB Academy and the talent that they are, are putting out year in and year out is, it's just getting better and better and better. Um, he has incredibly good people working for him, just grinders. Um, Max Cordio, Zach Ransom, uh, Cooper Stewart, uh, Hayden Fenner, um, all of those guys. Um, there's just a, there, there's a big importance there of doing things the right way of letting these players thrive and, and giving them, it's no different than a Madison college of like, just trying to prepare these guys to get them to open up doors that are not currently available to them. It's, it's a really important thing at GRB Academy. And I think uh, Greg does a really great job of um, in terms of that preparation of having the right people working for him in terms of the practice structure and how it's, it's developed the different other avenues that are available for the players to take advantage of at GRB Academy. Um, It's a beautiful facility. It's got, everything that's needed for guys to be successful. Um, and then there's so much time, I'll say this too, what I really respected about my time at, at GRB Academy was it was very, very important that the decisions that were made in terms of like the placement of where the players should be, the amount of time that went into those discussions was crazy. I mean, we would have like sometimes two meetings a week that would last two hours each of just in this big whiteboard of just trying to place these players. And it wasn't about, you know, these kids have to be on the A-team. Sometimes it's like you have an influx of really talented infielders. This kid's going to benefit more from being on this team because he's going to get the most at-bats, which is going to help him for the future, right? So it's uh it's, it's very structured. It's very organized. And I think uh, Greg and the, and the crew there does a, a phenomenal job at that.
0: I look at the state of of Wisconsin as a whole, like it's the blueprint for any state out there that doesn't really have a lot of travel or facilities. You look at GRB, the hitters, the sticks, like it seems like every good travel organization in Wisconsin has a beautiful indoor facility, which you're going to need in that part of the world to be able to get better, that Mm -hmm. has open space, has a weight room, has everything that a player would need to get better over the winter to get ready for their spring season.
1: It's crazy when you, not just GRB Academy, but Sean Smith at Sticks and RJ Fergus, obviously with hitters and success that they've had, um, Wisconsin has some damn good players. Yes. Right. And and you realize it quickly when you actually are around those environments of those different academies and how they approach things. It's like, yeah, no kidding. Like these guys, uh, these guys know how to prepare players and, and make them better.
0: Yep. Yep, and it just gives kids uh, just an avenue to get better that they didn't have in the past. And there's always been good players that have come out of Wisconsin. They just weren't as finished. Um, you know, where, where right. now you're getting more of a finished product with the high school kids that are coming out. I mean, you look at the amount of kids that are getting drafted high now out of high school in Wisconsin. It's They have opportunities over the winter to get better that they never had in the past.
1: Yeah. And you, and you, and you nailed it too. Cause there's always that conversation about Northern players and Southern players, right. Or, or even kids in like California, obviously like the hotbed of baseball. Um, and even when I was in high school, there wasn't, there weren't facilities like that. So in the winter time, you were kind of stuck in a little cage, right. You're just trying to do the best that you can. Now there's really not an excuse. Like you have, you have these amazing opportunities to continue to you know, hone in on your craft and continue your game throughout the winter months when you can't be outside um, that were never available to you in the, in the past.
0: Any other coaches you want to give a shout-out to?
1: Oh, yes. Um, for sure, Chris Shores at UW-La Crosse. Um, I have to just because he gave me my first start, you know, and I think that is a, is a huge deal. You know, I, I talked to a lot of young coaches or, or even like college players like, hey, you know, I think I, I'd like to get into coaching someday. And I always say to them, like, the most important thing is you got to find somebody that's willing to give you your first start. And um, I went and played at UW lacrosse my last two years. And as soon as my playing career was done, I kind of started to understand. I was like every other kid. I wanted to play professional baseball. But it got to a point where I realized, like, physically, it's, you know, I'm I'm not like a lot of these guys. Um, I'm still going to play my butt off and and see if I can open up a door for myself. But, you know, this coaching thing is really appealing to me. Um, and when my playing career was done, uh, I, I, I met up with coach Shores and said, Hey, this is something I really want to do. And fortunate for me. And I'm internally forever grateful uh, to him right away. Year one, he let me join the staff and got me my first start. And, um, that was a really, really important, big deal to me.
0: I'm looking at your Twitter profile. You got the Core Velocity belt hooked up to somebody, which I I love the Core <laughs> Velocity belt. So just go through a little bit of off-season training. What you're having guys work on right now, and some of the tools that you're using with guys.
1: Okay, this is the fun part. <laughs> so I've really transformed um, within the last, I would say, two and a half years, two years. Um, I realized like I was I I loved where I was at. You know, obviously talking about Coach Davenport and all these people that I've been around, I was around some really great people that trained me to to see things and use my eyes in really effective ways. But I knew I was stuck and like I needed to um, develop and, and, and get better at my craft. So within the last uh, two years or so, um, it, it just became like this obsession of trying to understand the human body better and how it moves. Um, to create a better lens and to be able to see things even better and see things quicker so I could help players make adjustments faster. And so I went through that entire process, which was um, huge, huge for me. And then within the last, I would say even since COVID hit, like all of these different avenues and these different things that I dove into, it's all come into like this one common narrative, which is really exciting for me. And, um, another shout out that I want to give to, cause he's been great to me, um, in terms of a resource is Eugene Bleeker with 108 performance, um, being able to bounce questions off of him, his book, old school versus new school was a game changer in terms of me understanding the human body better and, and creating a better lens. But in terms of the off season training, a thing that I've really dove into is, especially with the players that I get to work with, you know formerly college guys and now professional guys, they've been playing the game for a really long time. So they're more fine-tuned. They're more myelinated in terms of how their bodies move. So when it comes to making adjustments, it can be a much more difficult task uh, for them to be able to, to feel things and to make changes. So I dove into that and I started to figure it out. And the big thing that came to me was the central nervous system and understanding what that actually means. So what I've been doing a lot recently and it's something that i'm definitely going to continue moving forward with is the use of implements and constraints when it comes to um, the hitters that i get to work with and the core velocity belt is a great one it's it's an automatic right
0: it is i for pitching and hitting i just it, it allows them to feel what an actual hip hinge is it allows them to feel why they are actually doing those movements and why they should do those movements i think it's the best thing out there and Lance doesn't pay me any money to say any of that, but (laughs) I just thought, you know, we got it for our pitchers first. And then I was like, you know what, because I would put it on and and go through the exercises to try to teach guys. I was like, this will work for hitters too. Um, For sure. I just, it it, it takes some of the coaching out of it because they can actually feel what you're trying to get them to do.
1: Uh, The and with the, the best part about the core velocity belt and like all these constraints is like you, just like you just said, is it, it forces a move. Right. And it, the cool part is, is like, as soon as you take, whether it's, a, whether it's the core velocity belt, I've used other really crazy things too. Uh, it could be a water flipper right on their back foot for a guy that's super pushy. moving I saw forward. the
0: picture of the flippers. So that's what you're using <laughs> it for.
1: It can be for that. It can be for a bunch of different things too, but you know, finding, being creative and, and using uh, these things that make it almost physically impossible for them to make the move that they have been making. And then all of a sudden, and this is the way that I'll approach it a lot with them. It's like, I'm seeing something with your swing, right? I want you to try something for me, right? It's, it's a little bit out there. It's a little bit strange, right? But I want you to take like eight to 10 swings. This is all I'm going to say. Just give it a shot. And when they get to swing like eight or 10, then you stop and you say, okay, Hey, what are you feeling? And I'm not kidding you right now, like with experimenting with this stuff within the last, I would say several months, let's say it's 50 guys that I've tried something with like 50 for 50. It's been like a hundred percent that they regurgitate something back to me of what I'm hoping that they feel without giving them the information ahead of time, because I've learned that it's like, if you say, Hey, I'm going to put this, you know, core velocity belt on your back tip, because you're, you're not really like holding the ground well with your back foot. Take 10 swings for me. Hey, what are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling myself like staying in the ground. Well you're with giving them the cliff foot. notes already. <laughs> right. We don't want to do that. Right. So being able to be creative and use these different things to basically screw with their, their central nervous system, to force their bodies to actually create a different movement, which then creates a different feel you take this thing away from them then and now they're swinging freely by themselves. It's so cool to watch because you actually, you see their eyes open up and this epiphany just go like, Whoa, right. I just felt something different. So now what you're creating is the ability for these hitters to make adjustments faster on their own because they actually know what they're feeling. And, um, that's, yeah. that, that's, that, that's the most important thing when it comes to hitting and, and coaching because we want these guys to become their best coaches. We can't stand in the batter's box with them. It with was them.
0: amazing to me with pitchers and hitters mm-hmm. when you would just do the initial, put them on their knees with the core velocity belt hooked up, put something on their shoulders, how much they couldn't counter-rotate where yeah. the shoulders and the hips are both flying out together. And I'm like, okay, you know, and, and then that's where the wheels would start to spin a little bit. And you could see, well, okay, that's why I can't cover the outer half is because both of these are working together. That's why I don't hit the ball as far or as hard as I should because both of those aren't working. You know, there's no counter-rotation there. And that was the fun part for me when guys started to figure that out on the mound and at the plate by just being on two knees and feeling their back hip move before their shoulders move. Like, it was, right. It was unreal.
1: Right. And, you know, I've, I've done goofy things, too, like with guys that don't understand – you know, the feeling of actually holding the ground the right way. S- something as goofy as get two yoga blocks and have them hit on yoga blocks. If they're not holding the ground the right way, or if their motor is too big within their swing, they're going to fall off those yoga blocks. There's other a balance things. You beam. Can some... I mean, we used a balance yes. beam forever. And that's, a, that. And that's, I'm happy you said that too. Because... We did. I
0: mean, that was something we built, you know, we, we would build those cause you had to make them sturdy enough because if not, you know, you wanted it at least stable enough and you needed it big enough to where they could get on it. And so we would mess around with it. I mean, we'd have them with their toes off. We'd have them with their heels off just so they could get different feels for what they were trying to do with their feet.
1: To figure out where their pressure points need to be, right? Because everybody's different. Some guys need to feel themselves more on the ball of their foot. Some guys need to feel themselves more on the heel of their foot. But I'm happy you said that because like with all these ideas, and it's already happened. Like I knew there's going to be some people and I'm not, I'm not trying to like be like the, like what people perceive the hitting Twitter guys to be. Right? Well, we all,
0: we all run into it. Anytime you throw something out there, that's abnormal. You're going to get pushback. Like that's just what mm-hmm. social media is. But you talk about being elite. There's different things that you can do out there that make guys elite or help develop elite if you do what everybody else does, you're probably going to get the same results that everybody
1: else gets. Right. And with the balance beam, um, these, these constraints and these implements, they've been used longer than people realize. Yes. Right. And yes. now it's just like, well, it's just about being more creative and maybe taking it to a, just a little bit of a different level. But you know, I, hey, me, people made
0: fun of well, the guys that played for my high school coach, coach Don Mattingly, we had a stride box. This is early nineties. We had a stride mm-hmm. box. We would have a drill where we would put a volleyball in between our knees to squeeze our, our legs together to make sure our levers were being short with our knees because that was a Gary Ward thing. We had the Gordy Gillespie Velcro strap around the elbows to keep the elbows down and in a right. good position. We had an axe-handled bat that had a net that you had to be palm down, palm up at contact to catch the the wiffle ball that was <laughs> thrown to you. Like We had all this stuff in the early 90s, but – you didn't, nobody really knew about it because you didn't have social media. So people didn't see all this stuff. There was constraint stuff going on back in the nineties and the eighties.
1: That's right. Yeah. And you know, there, there, there's always going to be pushback, but here's the cool part about it is that what I love about it the most, because this also fits in the sports psychology realm. And that's where I said, like all these different avenues, like just kind of coming together into this common narrative of, I'll tell you what, what, Ryan, like, I just got, I was done with making guys over internal and just having internal conversations of your hands are doing this, your stride foot's doing this, your hips are doing this. Because the the sports psychology has proven that we are only capable, we might have 30,000 to 60,000 thoughts a day, they don't know, but you're only capable of handling one thought at a time. So if I'm in a cage... And I'm working with guys. And the only thing I'm feeding them is always internal, internal, internal. I'm training them to be an internal thinker when they actually get in the batter's box. So the cool part about the constraints and the implements is like, put this on them, like make them use this constraint or this implement, but keep them external. Yes. Right. So, Hey, give me, do me a favor, take 10 swings with this thing on. Right. And, uh, and, and try to drive the ball at the top of the L screen. So now we're still training them to be external. We're keeping that one thought on the baseball to have the ball be driven in the right spot. But you're letting the constraint, you're letting the drill do the work for you. But then when they're done with 8-10 swings, then you can have the conversation. Then you can have the dialogue of, hey, what are you feeling? And and the cool part is, too, you have to have a whole bunch of tricks in your book. Obviously, find the constraints and the implements that create the right movements, right? But you want to have a couple of them so that you can continue to hone in that feel for them. And um, like I said, the, the really exciting part about it to this point is that, you know, the feedback that I'm getting and how they perceive it and how they decide to regurgitate it back to me has almost been a hundred percent in terms of trying to create the feel that we want them to feel, but it's a really, it's a really strong. And, and the cool part is too. I work with professional athletes. Like these guys have been drafted. They signed a contract. Uh, some of them, really expensive signing bonuses and the truth is and I think all players are kind of like this it's like it's the brain is programmed to be comfortable they want to be comfortable right so when I'm dealing with a professional athlete and I've been lucky enough I mean we've had we've all been assigned players throughout this COVID session I've been talking to them and I've actually ran these ideas by them some of them like the goofy ones like a water flipper and I'd be like hey what would you do if I said hey you're being super pushy I want to get you.'" more anchored into the ground. And I said, Hey, we're going to take some swings with the water flipper in your back foot. They all want to be successful. And the one kid said to me, he goes, he goes, berm. He goes, if you told me to hit with my pants down, I'd do it if it meant that I was going to have a better chance of driving the ball in the gap. Right. So, and the cool part also is the intrigue level is high. Like when you see guys doing these different things, even though they are seem goofy but they know that the feeling is real and it's actually making them actually learn how to make adjustments on their own. That's what they're looking for. And I I've just found that when it, when you keep it overly internal, it's like, Hey, you're, you're burying your hands behind your body. Yeah. But I can't feel it. Okay. Well, let me force you to feel it. You know what I'm saying? And that's what I've learned. And I think, like I said, with the sports psychology, the human anatomy, uh, player development, it's all just kind of come together. Like this all makes sense. And this is, this is a way that, we can definitely move forward and and speeding up the process for these players to hopefully help them move up the levels a little bit faster.
0: Does the narrative change on the facility side? If the players that they're working with, um, it's dependent on their team to win games for them to come back into their facility, or there's a, a refund. If a player doesn't have a good season these are some of the crazy some of the crazy things that I think about because I think about skin in the game like I think you know as a facility owner I think you you should have some skin in the game on whether a kid's team does well or that kid has a good spring or a good summer where I don't think you see it as much of it it's okay come get your swings in and then I'm going to kick you out the door come come get your bullpen session in and then I'm going to kick you out the door does the narrative change on that side of things if if there's more emphasis on wins and losses for them to be able to get paid? Or does it stay the same?
1: I guess I'm not totally understanding the yeah. question. I, those are so, just
0: the, the random – that's the random things I think about because I think it's easy to just sit in a cage with guys and do this and do that. But once you put wins and losses on it and, and results, then I think the narrative changes, oh, changes I, a little bit from a that. player development standpoint.
1: I'll, I'll and, say, and maybe I'm
0: you. maybe I'm off the reservation with my thinking on that. But being on the coaching side as long as I was and kind of seeing the arguments that people get into sometimes on social media, I think it's almost apples to oranges sometimes because there is a different philosophy when a kid comes in your facility all the time as opposed to a guy that's that's trying to win games with them.
1: I'll say I, I I'll say this. I'm going to answer the question. Um we don't want players to focus on results overly right we don't want them to get you know frozen on on the batting average and all that type of stuff But i'll say this in terms of coaching and player development. That is an account- accountability factor for us if i'm putting a guy through a training environment. My success is on their success.
0: Hey, because it tore me up. Uh, when, you know, you invest all that time as a coach with your guys. It tore me up if they had bad seasons. Like, tore me up to pieces. And I don't think the players right. always see that. Like, it it tore me up. I would – if I had guys coming into a year that I thought were going to have great years and they they had subpar years, like, it tore me up as a coach. I would think about it all summer and to try to get ready for the fall. But, like, it would take me all summer to decompress – if I felt like guys underachieved in the spring.
1: No, I'm, I'm with you hundred percent, especially with the, you know, the background of coming from Madison college and like wanting to open up doors and opportunities for these guys, it, it was a huge deal, but it, it create, you know, this, it creates this obsession. It's like, you, you're not going to quit until you get it right with them, but you need the player to understand that and be with you on that journey because we live in a we live in a world now where we just crave quick results like I can go on Google type something in and get 35 million results in point zero one seconds baseball doesn't work that way so yeah that's it, it's a it's a huge part of it and it, it does tear it, it I'm, I'm with you I understand exactly what you're saying but here's the thing that I would say it's like the biggest thing that we need to understand as coaches is that it's, it's really easy to create really good swings and good hitters in a cage. The, the, the main thing that we need to really understand is like what the training and the environment that I'm putting this player in and the movements I'm trying to create within their system and their body, does this translate? Will this translate at 7 PM when the lights are on and it's most important? And that was a big learning experience for me, too, through this whole process of understanding the human anatomy and the body better and the constraints and messing with the central nervous system is making sure. And we talked about earlier, like what Darren likes to do is like expose these guys to velocity. You can get away with so much. It's like talking about the time to impact with the blast sensor. Right. The metrics and the numbers could be really good on the blast sensor, but then they get to seven o'clock and they can't hit because they're overcompensating to create those numbers So we really need to have a really good lens and understand like the movement that we're creating, what we're seeing, will this work versus a guy that really knows how to handle the baseball that's standing in front of you trying to get you out. You know, and I think that's where you can avoid those issues a little bit uh, better is making sure that, um, you know, the movements that we're creating and uh, the constraints within their system is gonna match up when um, the margin for errors is really, really small.
0: What are some things that you've kept? I mean, you're adding some new stuff in. What what are some things that you've kept on the hitting development side?
1: I would say this, that the overall, you know, backbone of who I am, you know, like my core covenants, if you want to call it that, have always remained the same. And we talked about one earlier. It's, for me, it always will be the most important thing when it comes to being a successful hitter is can you consistently get into a strong position to hit, to let the swing unfold the right way for you. And it's a part that I think does get overlooked often. It's like, we, we do get over technical with different aspects of the movement and the swing, but if we're not on time, you know, I, I do believe that, you know, in terms of like where hitters are at now and like with the of strikeout rates and, uh, the bat the ball skills going down. It's like when you watch hitters on video, and even at the big league level, you can learn from guys that strike out a ton at the big league level and try to figure out why. It's like when their front foot hits, everything's opening, right? And Jason and-
0: Hayward, I always use Jason Hayward as a good example, and I, rec- I watched him in high school. He still had the same timing when he was with the Cubs and all the way through almost his entire big league career that he had in high school which is why he didn't always get his best swing off and why his swing looked funky and why he swung and missed a lot and why he missed hit a lot of balls. Because when the pitcher's hand broke, he wasn't moving. And he still mm-hmm. had high school time where the ball is released out of the hand and then he's starting to move. Like, And I, I know right. it's hard for some guys to make that adjustment, and I'm sure somebody showed him that. But then, again, it's on the player then. Okay, here's what, here's what the elite guys look like. Here's what you're doing and here's what you're not doing then it's ultimately on the player that he has to be able to make that adjustment as well.
1: Right. And that's where like some of these old school adjectives or like these old school sayings like are true and they work like the whole thing of get your foot down early, depending on how you communicate it. Yeah. But there's but if you don't move
0: like and, and that that was always the, the hard part, like you tell a kid to get his foot down early and he doesn't load like that's not good either. <laughs> right, Exactly. <laughs> oh, well, coach, exactly. I'm getting my foot down early. Well, well, you're you're not getting into a good position. You're not loading. You might be getting your foot down early, but you're not doing any things that you need to do on the front end to make sure that's a productive getting your foot down early.
1: <laughs> that's right. And like for me, get your foot down early means your foot is down before you make your decision. Yes, right. Yes, and, you know, and it's not.
0: And you can be on the ball of foot with air underneath your heel. I mean, pool host is a good example. David Wright was a good example of early, you know, almost modified no stride where they their foot would be down. They would load and then they would stride a little bit, but still had rhythm and timing with what they were doing because their their front heel wasn't down. And for me, right, that was the, right. the difference if, if your front heel doesn't land yet, you're still in good position. But once that front heel strikes, then it, then you got to go, then, then you got go. to go trigger it. Yeah. Yep.
1: yep. yep. Uh, Daniel Murphy's one of them too, uh, that hits like that. Yep. And Jack Wilson you know, I, was I, a Jack
0: Wilson was a weird Jack Wilson was like way open and then would stride early closed and then roll back. Like he had so much stuff going on with his swing, but <laughs> Um, you know, and that's the cool thing with hitting is there's a lot of different ways to do it, but the, the hitting position itself is very similar for all of them.
1: A hundred percent. Absolutely. Like when you look at the guys are the best of the best, look at the position they get into when their front foot or front heel actually does strike. Right. But I'll say this, like you said, you had all, he had all this different stuff going on. Everything works and everything sucks, but you got to figure out what works for each guy. And I, I, I've come to embrace that, but I do believe in terms of like some things that I take, you know, that I've, I've held on to is that there's guess hitters and there's adjustable hitters. And I believe that adjustable hitters are the guys that consistently do get their foot down or their heel down before they make their decision. The guest hitters are the guy that when it, as soon as the front foot hits the swings already triggered and starting. And unfortunately I think because of like the massive strikeout rates and where we're at right now in the limited, more limited bat to ball skill, which I do think is going to change. I think, the game will change here and that's going to be more of a precedent going forward is, um, you know, you, you see with those guys that, that you're seeing that more now where it's like the, the, the front foot hits and the swing is just starting and there's just more room to actually be exposed within the actual swing. Which I don't is blame them swings, though. Swings. I mean,
0: with, with the type of stuff that they're ha- that they're facing now, I, I mean, stuff's always been good, but the consistent stuff that they see, I would get jumpy too. Like, okay, I know I'm facing 98 to a hundred today. Oh, by the way, tomorrow you're going to face it again. And you're going to face 88 to 90 mile an hour sliders. Probably going to get a little jumpy. You know, you got to be really strong in between the ears to be like, really? okay, yeah. I may look gross here, but I'm going to stick with what I'm doing here. Even if I look gross on a couple swings.
1: And you have to, you know, you ask the majority of like the big league players, like we were talking about earlier, like the average major league fastball is continuing to go up and up and up. They have a lot of information. And of course, a lot of these guys will sit on pitches, but with a lot of these pitchers, especially with how they can huck it their their number one concern is I got to get my barrel head out on this. I got to be able to get to this pitch. And, you know, that's, that's a really important concept, especially at the higher levels, but, Here's, here's what I would say with that all And when it comes to, to speed, okay, your eyes can be can can really screw you up, right? Because your eyes are sending a signal to your brain. And if you're standing in the dugout, and you're watching this guy warm up, and you're like, holy cow, he can really bring it. Those are the guys that end up being super jumpy in the batter's box. And here's a really goofy drill that I've just tried recently, that has been kind of like this epiphany for myself too. It's really tough to do. It helps if the guy has like more of a gather, but even if it's a guy with a short gather, you can kind of control it as a coach, but you have them stand in the batter's box and you literally have them have their eyes closed. Okay. And then the way that I do it is through my motion and my, how, how I throw BP, I try to time it up with how they operate their forward move so that when I say go, I'm on, I don't know where I'm at. I'm usually at that point. I'm like, my hands are coming together to go up to throw. They're then opening up their eyes to come forward, but because they're opening up their eyes later, they aren't jumpy, right? Because they're not perceiving that speed, right? So that in itself is then a message to the player. You have the conversation of what can you learn from this? Okay. When you take your eyes out of the equation, right? And you open up your eyes up late, you move more efficiently. You're more calm with how you get into the ground. And going further with that, we talked about earlier of exit velocity and how that is an important metric. But for me, I want, yeah, of course, I want that exit velocity to be high, but how effortless can we do it, right? So if you're creating a swing with efficiency that creates effortless exit velocity and you can train them to not let their eyes only see speed but consistently get into the same position to hit, whether you're facing a guy throwing 96 or a guy throwing 84 – but your forward move and how you get into the ground is always the same. Now you're allowing those efficient movements with that effortless exit velocity to kind of take over, if that makes sense.
0: Well, I mean, we, we would say it, you know, we prep our hitters like, Hey guys, he's providing the velocity. And I mean, there's probably correlation as the, as the pitchers are throwing harder the exit velocity is going to go up just because the eggs, because guys are throwing harder. So yes, the, the reaction just of the ball it. coming off the bat, yeah, it's going to come off harder. So you don't have to do as much and the balls are wound a little bit tighter. The bats are better. You don't have to do as much to drive the ball now. I mean, and you don't,
1: we, we, we had the amazing opportunity uh, through COVID. We would have uh, hitting hot stoves with our minor league guys. And we actually had some big leaguer guys come on and talk to them and, talk about their experiences and like different pitchers that they've faced. And when they're facing velocity, the amount of times that it came out of their mouth of all I had to think to myself is all I have to do is touch Touch it. it. I just have to touch it. Right. That's exactly what you're saying. It's it, it, and it works right. As long as the swing works and it's efficient and it works in tight windows. Right. And we're not trying to create, but you know, this Ryan, from, from your coaching experience, it always happens. How come when we're facing a guy with velocity, all of a sudden, we're so jumpy in the batter's box, right? So long story short, what I'm getting to, it's your eyes. It's your eyes sending this message to your brain of, okay, this looks faster, so I have to move faster. That's not true, right? It's not true, and that's not going to help you. So that's where that drill is, is really powerful. If you can have them close your eyes and you can time it up right in terms of you as the BP thrower you don't see that jumpiness anymore because their eyes aren't able to send that signal of holy cow, here it comes.
0: <laughs> and I would I would tell you guys, hey, use your on deck time productively. Like if you feel like he's throwing hard, then make sure you can be easy and your barrels arriving as the, at the same time as his fastball in the on deck circle. Or if you're mm-hmm. timing him up when he's in the bullpen is just try to do it easy. I went, um, took my family when my kids were younger. I was recruiting in Wisconsin, and then we were going to, to Minnesota. So we went and watched a Brewers game, and I filmed a lot of different things, but I filmed the on-deck guy mostly because I wanted to bring it back to our hitters at Iowa to show them, like, here's how easy they are doing things on deck. And they're on time, their timing's good, their barrel's arriving in the hitting zone at the same time as the ball, but they're doing it easy. Because as right. soon as you get into the box and the competitive juices start flowing, you're going to naturally get ramped up. So you that's have right. to try to, to, to be below that. Because if you're already at max, then it's going to be red line at the plate.
1: Yeah. And that's where understanding who you are as a player is super important too. Because there's been plenty of guys that they have to think 80% to get their right 100% of their swing.
0: Same, but thing Same thing by going
1: into hundred percent by going into the batter's box and thinking 80%, they're right. They're correct. A hundred percent is going to show up. But if we as coaches are just constantly telling guys like swing as hard as you can find what your hundred percent is and back off from there, that, that necessarily is not going to help every single player in terms of what makes them tick, how they perceive reality and what's going to get their most efficient swings off, especially with what we're talking about right now with velocity.
0: I, I love doing different percentages with guys. So we would start at like 50% of what they felt like their their max was, and then we'd build up to 100. We'd try to have them get them over 100 and then back it down. Uh, Dan Heifner at, at DBU does a good job with, with the radar gun of getting guys to have different feels on, okay, they know what their top-end exit velocity is. We'll try to hit this 110 miles an hour slower just to tinker around with, with different swing speeds and, and, different, That's great. and different efforts. Um, That's great. Yeah. And again, so they can start to feel kind of what their best swing is and what their best tempo is. Because you're right, every, every guy is going to be different that you deal with. That's the cool thing with coaching is, is every guy you deal with is going to be completely different.
1: And Dan's great. And I think what's also great about that is just body awareness yes. and just being aware of how you're moving to create a specific uh, result. Right. And the more we can put guys in environments like that, now you're, you're even more fine tuning in terms of their movement and their ability to make adjustments on their own. That's great. I've never heard that one before, but I like that a lot
0: yeah, he did it uh, two years ago, we were barnstormers, and he had his whole team out. So he actually showed it with their players. and it was neat because, you know, you could tell that it was late. It was November, so they'd had it all fall. and he had some of their older guys who'd been through it. And they could all do it. It was great. Like he'd call out a, an exit velocity number and they would hit it. and he would he would add the, you know the external cues like, okay, we want eighty eight to the right side or, you know 95 to the pole side and they were all doing it i just thought it was awesome because they had had, cool. had trained so they knew what they were doing i, I thought it was tremendous you talked about eugene bleaker's book what are some other good resources for people to dive into
1: for sure eugene's book uh that was like I said, at that time and where I was at with my career, it was just like, there's more I need to understand. It had all to do with human movement and the anatomy and how the body's put together. And that was the book that really transformed and changed things for me. I will say this, he's an incredibly intelligent individual. So there's some chapters in there, especially when it starts going into how the body's put together, you might have to read it like three times through just to create your own understanding. But, um, you know other resources. The the way that I approach it is I, I try not to get too much. When I first started coaching, there was it was just it was like a, being a player and just having information overload, and I just had I had too much being that's, shoved into my brain.
0: That's what this book you people uh, listening. You can't see this, but this is Smarter Faster Better by Charles Duhigg, who wrote The Power of Habit. This book is a, talks about information overload when people have too many decisions to make, then they lock up. So it talks a lot about simplifying and, and, you know, especially at your level, you have all this information for guys, but trying to whittle all that information down to what's actually important. I mean, that's a big responsibility for you guys is taking all this information that's out there and trying to whittle it down. So it's digestible for the guys that you're dealing with.
1: For sure. And I I did that too. Like when I first started coaching, I was just, I was young, I was excitable. I wanted all this information, but it got to a point where it was just too much. It was all great stuff. But with where I was at before I got Eugene's book was I just need to find one resource that I know is going to help me for sure. And I did my homework and I found a whole bunch of different options. It all started with a Google search and it kind of led me to his book. And I figured out, I think this is the book that's going to help me with with what I feel like I need right now. Um, their website's great too. They have a whole bunch of different like mentorship courses and, um, hitting and pitching courses that I I really like how they do it because they look at it from a different perspective. And the word that they use all the time is efficiency, you know, like strikeouts aren't cool. Like we don't want to strike out, but it's about figuring out each individual mover and like where they're at and like what we have to do with their, with their system to create the best results. But the other, and by the way,
0: players aren't trying to strike out. (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. Like people are on these guys. These guys aren't trying to strike out like nobody's going up to the plate trying to strike out. It's just, it's where we're at right now. Like it's, but you also have to, you have to take with a grain of salt too. Like it's, they're facing different stuff now.
1: For sure. And the other, the other resources that I would just say, so I, I honed in on that book and I've just really stayed true to that book and like kind of learned and developed and the only way that i learned and develop from what i've learned in, in that book is by getting in the trenches and experimenting with this stuff and seeing if it actually works i'm telling you it works you know i've I, the players that i've worked with have had some really good results showing up but podcasts like obviously the abc one you, you guys do a phenomenal job with the, the the people that you have on your show and the information you can gather from there but there's there's a lot of other really good ones out there too where it's just like find people that are incredibly smart that have had really great experiences and listen to it and it's not about taking every single thing they do and applying it yourself but as you listen to these guys talk that have had these experiences with some of them working with some phenomenal players it could be one or two things that you're like I need to apply that that fits with my philosophy that fits with what I want to do so it's just about being open-minded uh, I, I'm i really careful on Twitter um, like I said the uh, there's a lot of stuff out there right now. And it's, it, it, you just have to be really careful in terms of like what you're actually investing in and what you are choosing to expose yourself to. Um, but yeah, that would be my advice to people is like find something that, that you feel like fits within your lens of what you think builds success for hitters or pitchers or whatever it may be. Attach yourself to that. And then give yourself time to take that information and actually apply it without bringing in 14 other different things to kind of confuse yourself through that process. Yeah.
0: But it can be tough. It's challenging, man, especially when you first get into it because mm-hmm. you feel like you're behind, you know, when you first get into coaching and you see all these guys and that's where the social comparisons, this is, there's some great things about social media, but the social comparisons are, are really tough on, on young players, on young coaches, because you see what well, everything that's out there. So you feel like you have to be doing everything and, it's really tough in the beginning when, when you feel like, okay, you're drinking from the fire hose because there is so much stuff that's out there. Hey, who, who hey. introduced you to the ABCA?
1: So who would have that been? Um, I'm pretty sure it was Scott Gillitzer yeah. with uh, UW lacrosse. Cause when I first got into coaching, I'm going to admit, I didn't even know the ABCA existed. Yeah.
0: Why well, don't as a <laughs> right? player, like I, I was lucky that my dad and brother did it. So I knew about the ABCA from them. But if I didn't have a a family member that was in coaching, if I was just playing, there's no way I would have known about the ABCA. No way.
1: Yeah, and at at that point, I think it was just like, hey, are you aware of this, that there's a convention held every single year where you have some of the best baseball minds on the stage, like just giving information. And ever since then, I've been there every single year and, like, you know, the – and the ABC has just grown so much since then with the the podcasts and the barnstormers and everything that is now available to us, uh, the resources that we can have. It's, it's phenomenal, but um, I'm pretty sure that was it. And then um, it's just become a yearly thing. Me and uh, Seth Feldman uh, also played at UW cross. Now he is in the DR with the Minnesota twins. Uh, Me and him go to the ABC together every single year and um, split a hotel room and um, talk a lot of baseball, and our networks are continuing to grow, so it's, it's just been a really great experience, it's super cool to think about, like, when I first, when I first went, it was just me by myself, and I'm, I was that guy that was in every single speech, taking every single note, just, you talk about information overload, <laughs> um, but at that time, I loved it, and it was, I was hungry for it, and it was great, and it, it definitely helped me to get to where I am right now, but to think where I was back then where I, I, I knew nobody. Okay. And I've, I've been a guy that's never really like tried to force the networking thing. Um, But as time has gone on, just by being in the game longer and creating like real true relationships with people, this network has grown to where now I'm sitting in hotel rooms talking to people like, Holy cow, how am I in the hotel room right now with this guy? You know? So it just takes time, but I think that's, now I'm like kind of like going in a different area, but like that can be a very intimidating thing as a young coach when you're in a huge convention like that. And there's all these amazing people and you feel like, oh, I got to get to know all these people. It takes time. It takes time. And the and the real true relationships are the ones where you can find yourself in those hotel rooms or that hotel lobby where you're around these amazing people. And then actually building a, a relationship that's going to be long lasting rather than just a quick interaction.
0: Do you have a fail forward moment? Do you have something that you thought maybe was going to set you back, but you look back now, it's the best thing that ever happened to you?
1: Fail forward moment. I'm, uh, yes. I mean, I'm, the only way that you figure this stuff out is by throwing crap on the wall and seeing if it sticks. And like we were just talking about when I was younger and like the information overload stuff, I, I do think back and you hear a lot of coaches talk about this, and it's true that some of the stuff that I was teaching when I first started, it's like, what was I doing? You know, but at the time it felt right. It felt like it was the, it was the right information to help these players get better. But I I have moments like that all the time where it's like, I'm so happy with where I'm at right now. And that I was willing to go through those moments and, and be true to myself and understanding like, okay, this isn't working. This isn't helping these players. I got to find something different and then move on to the next thing. And going through that process with myself to finally get to a point where it's like, okay, now this all kind of makes sense. And this is actually helping these guys create the fields and create the adjustments, create the movements that they actually need. Uh, I think it, there's no like specific moment. It's just like the overall journey of a coach that we all go through where it's just like, it's crazy how everything just evolves and how much time that actually takes.
0: I love the term amorphite uh, It's called love your fate. But when players would be upset about something, I'm like, hey, write it down, and I want you to look back 12 months from now, and it probably happened exactly how it was supposed to happen and probably the way that you wanted it to happen. And sometimes we get so bogged down to like individual decisions and what's going to happen, and you look up a year later, and that's it happened exactly how it was supposed to happen and probably the, the way that I wanted it to happen, much more than, than in the initial of what I thought should happen.
1: Right. For sure. And I'll say this, that the, you know, the only way that we we make it as coaches in terms of finding these, these avenues and these areas that work and building a philosophy that works within player development and making players better is that it's because the players allow you to do it. Right. They, they, they put their trust in you and they allow you to go through these different ideas and these different things within the trenches and, then it's up to you to like be realistic with yourself and understand where where is this at and is this actually helping is this where is this the answer right the truth is and you know this we never have all the answers like you have to be open you have to continue to grow it'll be cool like 5 years from now i'll i'll be thinking the same thing it's just like wow look where i'm at compared to where i was 5 years ago but we all lifelong learners like Jerry Weinstein always jokes about he, he's one of the best in the world. And he's still
0: relevant. He's super gr- great Twitter follow, <laughs> still relevant, very self effacing, like makes fun of himself, tells you he's not a very good coach, even though he's probably the best one that we have. He just he's phenomenal. <laughs> just he just that. he's exactly what you should be because he could have the biggest ego in the world and there's no ego with him. He's trying to help the game. He's trying to help anybody that needs help. Uh just he's He's a one of a kind. He is. He really and, is one of a kind.
1: And, and what you just said is like, he, he always pokes fun at himself. Like I've screwed up more players than I've helped. It's like, Jerry, that's not true. You know, that's just not true, but that is the process of a coach. And that's kind of what you're talking about. It's like we all go through those moments and we just have to realize when those moments are happening and just continue on this trek of find the next best answer and keep moving forward, keep moving forward and be fortunate enough that you have players that are willing to go through that whole thing with you. You need that. You need to be in the trenches. You're not going to find the answers by, you know, just sitting at home and going through Twitter and watching videos. You actually have to be there. You have to like, with these constraints and these implements, put these players through it, get the feedback from them. After fall ball
0: was my favorite time after fall ball, when we were done with team practice, where we could get in the cage and really just start to work on things and let them, it was Mm -hmm. way more laid back you know, they could take a little bit of a breather from summer ball and fall ball. And so a little more laid back and, and really hone in on what they were trying to get better at and, and be able to spend time with them too. Like I, I loved that part of the year because then it was just you and them. Maybe you'd have one or two or three or four guys in there at a time, but you were able to, to really start to develop those relationships with guys because it was that one-on-one time that was important.
1: And that's where we grow the most yes. as coaches, for sure. And that's where like this COVID experience... Uh, you know, when this first happened, it was horrible, man. And and you know that like I I was at spring training and the only thought that I had is like, I just, I just felt horrible for the college guys. Like just horrible about the whole experience. Cause at that point I thought we were still going to be fine. Not to know that two days later I'd be on a plane being sent home, but through this COVID experience, you know, I have the opportunity to say that like, there's a lot of people speaking right now saying that 2020 is like the worst year ever for me personally, it's been one of the most powerful years in terms of my development and the things that I've learned. And the only reason for that is I've had the opportunity and part of it is just the safety of COVID in general, but to be a little bit selfish in terms of getting with players, you know, I, I worked with one specific player, um, throughout the COVID experience that he's the type of guy that is willing to try anything. Right. But I, I, we targeted each other because we wanted to take advantage of this time, not only to make him a better player, but by me being able to be in the trenches and like experiment with these ideas, the hours and hours of tedious work, that's what you need to figure out your philosophy. And I've been really fortunate throughout this entire COVID and that I feel like now, because of all these experiences that I've been able to have and these choices that I've made to let this happen right? To go through this work with, with this player and these players that now, when I go back to spring training with the Rockies, I'm so much more prepared to help those guys now try to get to their dreams and aspirations, which is playing in the big leagues. But that's what it takes. It takes what it takes. And you need to be willing to go through that if you want to be good at this thing.
0: You have any morning or evening routines that are set for you that you like, that you feel like help you?
1: Yeah. I like to, I I like to get up early. Um, and I'm a reader. I love to read. And uh, for me, it's just basically kind of like jump starting my day and jump starting my brain. Um, you know, and there's a bunch of there's no like set set routine that I like to go through. But it could be a podcast. It could be um, it could be a book that I'm reading currently. Uh, you know, it could be watching video of, of big league swings and, and trying to you know evaluate what makes them successful, what's making them struggle, whatever it could be. But get up early and kind of just start jump-starting my brain. And, you know, at night, it, it ranges. It could be, again, reading a book. It could be finding a really good documentary to watch. It, not even baseball-related. I just, I just like to learn things. And um, the more that I can put my brain through that process, I think the better off I am. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer in sleep, um, recovery. So, like, that's important to me. Um, but you know, at nighttime, you know, setting myself up to get a good night's sleep so I can get up early again and get right back to it, but no, no real set routine. I like to work out too. When I'm with the Colorado Rockies, our days start really early. Um, the routine that I would like to start, start with myself is get to facility early, get a workout in, you know, get the blood flowing, get my brain, get woke, get woken up, eat breakfast, get out for early work you know, set my BP groups and, and get the the day started. But routines are huge. You know, we are creatures of habits and, um, you have to find something that works for you. And it's, it's different for everybody for sure.
0: I cracked China McCarney up. Um, he's on with me, um, talking about his foundation, which is, is great. It's athletes against anxiety and depression, but I cracked him up (laughs) the other day because I basically told him step-by-step what my routine was. Like, it starts with the night before. And then I laid out exactly what I do until I get in the car to go to work. Like it's the same thing every day. Like it, you know, it, it doesn't really vary for me. Um, and a lot of it's because I've done it for so long that I don't have to think about it. Like right. I, it, it's, it's thoughtless because they're all built up habits now, because it's been pretty much the same. Even if I don't get up at the same time, the routine is still pretty set. So, which is, it was cracking him up. He goes, this might be the best text I've ever gotten because it was like 20 things of like what happens before I get in the car to go to work, which is, is wild. I don't think you have to be that way, but it just, it works for me.
1: And I I do believe that how you operate your morning sets up the rest of your day. So uh, another big thing that I try to do is when I wake up, I don't want to look at my phone at all. Yeah. That's tough. That's
0: really tough. It's a tough thing. Yeah.
1: And it, it's really tough and it just wants to suck you in. I've gotten rid of all my notifications on my I apps. I have to. And, and yeah. And so I wake up, I try not to even look at my phone for at least a half hour. Yeah. And like through that half hour, you know, I'm just, I'm trying to find something to jumpstart my day so I can be super productive moving forward. But no, that it's, it's incredibly important that people it just find It feels
0: like a win. Like, uh, even though I haven't even gotten to work yet, like it, I, it feels like I've already won. Like, because everything mm-hmm. is pretty much out of the way. So when I get here to my office, it's time to work. And there's no other distractions because I've gotten rid of a lot of that stuff before I get here. And then when it's, when I work, I work. And then when I leave here now, you know, a lot of it gets put down just because I feel like I'm way more productive because no notifications. I do have the My ABCA app. That, that's the only notification I have because I like interacting with the forum. And I want to make sure that I'm available for people that, that interact on the forums. But other than that, um, if I get a phone call, my phone bu- buzzes. But other than that, no text, mess- no, no text message yeah. notifications, no Twitter, no Instagram, no email. And that was about two years ago when I started to really dive into um, with uh, the documentary, The Great Hack, which is about Facebook and, and swaying elections. Yeah, that's where I started to really dive into what social media actually was doing and how it was being used. And and I was like, okay, I need to start to take some ownership of how how tied to the devices that I am. And that was just a personal preference. I'm not saying that anybody should do that at all. But if you do feel like you're being that it's sucking you in, then there are ways to get out of it. I know it doesn't feel like that at times, but anybody out there that's looking to make a change please reach out to me. Like I will help. Yeah. Um, but again, like I said, I, I've made so many <laughs> mistakes in my life. Like I, I don't judge anybody on anything because I've made so many mistakes, but there are ways that you can dig yourself out if, if you're buried.
1: And that, yeah, especially in today's world too, the, the documentary for me that really changed me was the social dilemma, yeah. which, yeah. holy great. cow, man, that makes you think differently. But yeah. I would just say this, just to kind of like wrap up this question is like, do it's really important for me to do something in the morning, like, especially when I'm not trying to look at my phone to take care of myself. Yes. Right. Cause I know that if I take care of myself in the morning during that time, that ultimately I'm going to do a better job of taking care of the others that I'm going to be interacting with throughout the, the rest of the day.
0: Well, yeah, you get an opportunity to show up as your best self then you know, right. that, that's an important thing of self care is you can show up every day as the best version of yourself for your the players that you coach, for your family, and and most importantly for yourself, like you're right. gonna feel better every day, like it's just. Right. Um, but it, that's easier said than done. It's we've all been there. When I was a young coach, like I was white knuckling it because you know you're not getting any sleep, and you know you got a young family. You know Eric Cressy sends <laughs> that out sometimes. Like he's got young kids. Like if you got young kids, like it's going to be a struggle. <laughs> it's, it's going to be a struggle for you for a while.
1: Until... I saw that. I saw that tweet. And like for reference for everybody out there, I don't have those responsibilities yet. So, you know, and my kids change, are older, you know, I, I had yeah.
0: those responsibilities, but my kids 17 and 15 now that they are self-sufficient, like they don't need us to get them going. They can get themselves going. And so, when the kids get older, then yeah, you can start to develop some of these things. But when your kids are young, you're just white knuckling it to try to make sure that nobody kills themselves around the house.
1: <laughs> what are some That's final funny. thoughts? Um, You know, I guess the, the, the final thoughts would be, you know, the, the main overall objective of all of us as coaches is that it's all about just making the players that we have the opportunity to coach better and, you know, don't be so close minded to like what opportunities are out there to allow that to happen. And yes, we do need to have a filter, we need to be careful with what we're choosing to expose ourselves to what we're choosing to use what we're choosing not to use. But there's a lot of really great people out there that if you do your homework, and you do um, the necessary um, steps to figure out who those people are, where you can really grow a really strong philosophy and Like we kind of said, like a lot of the stuff that I'm using now to help these players get better, there's a lot of people out there that will probably never buy into it. That's okay. Like, that's fine. You know, find what works for you. Um, But the most important thing is is that our main objective is we want these guys to be successful. It's not about us. But, you know, it is a pretty darn good feeling when you can go through a, a training regimen with a specific purpose of how you go about it, and then that guy goes out and has a great year has success. He feels great walking up to the plate. You know, that's, that's, that's all we want to do as coaches. So, um, you know, be open-minded and, um, you know, take in the right information and go out there and get in the trenches, work your butts off. It's the only way that you can actually make this thing happen.
0: All right. Thanks so much.
1: Appreciate it. Thank you, Ryan.
0: Awesome. Good stuff. Is it Good. Oh yeah. Yeah. What'd you th- <laughs> Thanks to Trevor for getting my juices going talking about developing hitters. The offseason was one of the most fun times I had as a coach working with players in the lab. He's also a great example of surrounding yourself with great people. With his personality and humbleness, you can see why people are willing to help him. I hope you picked up some tips on helping your players. The offseason is a great time of the year to try new things as a coach with your players. It's a wonderful opportunity to test out new drills and theories you may have to see if they work. It's also okay if something isn't working to move on to something else. The best developers we have in the game are experimenters and willing to tinker and adjust as they go. There's so much gray area with player development, and that's the fun part. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West in the ABCA office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownly at abca.org, Twitter at coach B underscore ABCA, Instagram at Ryan 17 or direct message me via the MyAPCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you.